Well, if you have your Bible, please turn in it to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. We are taking a brief break from our study through Proverbs uh, to consider how we might satisfy our souls in the Lord at the beginning of this new year. Let me read Psalm 63 for us. We will study it together. Psalm 63. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Thanks be to God for his precious word. Well, I am no doctor, but as I understand it, when you are thirsty, your body is telling you that you need water. Uh, The human body is about 70% water, And we need regular intake of water in order to function. So when our bodies sense that we're running out, that we're getting dehydrated, that we need some more, they create the sensation of thirst so that we'll have a drink. And that sounds really simple. Uh, But when we're thirsty, there's actually a danger that we might misinterpret what's going on. That we might misunderstand what it is that our bodies really need. You see, when you're thirsty, your body is telling you that you need water. But it feels like when you're thirsty, any drink will do, even if there's really not that much water in it, right? When I'm thirsty, sometimes I go for the Chick-fil-A diet lemonade or the diet Coke. I don't know why I like diet drinks. I just like the taste. Sometimes I go for the Starbucks when I'm thirsty or the hot chocolate or the green tea. And I feel for a moment like these things quench my thirst. But whatever I drink, the only thing that meets the actual need in my body that triggered the thirst is water. When you're thirsty, what you feel like you need isn't always what you actually need. Well, this morning, we're looking together at Psalm 63, uh, which I read for us a moment ago. And this is a psalm written by King David, 
the Old Testament king of Israel who lived about a thousand years before the Lord Jesus. You can see that from the superscription in all caps before verse 1. And one of the metaphors that David uses, you noticed surely, to describe a need of his soul is the metaphor of thirst. And what we find in Psalm 63 is that David rightly understands his soul's thirst. David knows what the living water that his soul requires is. Before we dive into the passage, let me just point out a few things to you about the circumstances in which Psalm 63 was written. So there in the superscription, again in all caps, it says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. David wrote Psalm 63 when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Uh, The wilderness of Judah is in the land of Israel. It's just to the north of the capital city, Jerusalem, where David would have reigned. Uh, In case you wondered, hey, what is the the wilderness of Judah like? Well, David tells us there in verse 1. He says, it's a dry and weary land where there is no water. So why is David there? What's he doing? Well, the reason that David is in the wilderness of Judah appears to be that his life is in danger from his enemies. Look down there in verse 9. David speaks about those who seek to destroy my life. So there are people actively trying to kill David. At the end of verse 11, David calls these people liars. So it looks like David is being slandered by people who are trying to kill him. And the wilderness of Judah north of the capital city, is a great place for David to flee when there's trouble in Jerusalem. So from other parts of the Bible, we gather that David's sojourn in the wilderness was most likely during one of two events recorded elsewhere in Scripture. So Psalm 63 was probably written either during the reign of King Saul or during the rebellion of David's son, Absalom. Let me give you a quick rundown on those situations. So first, Saul was the king of Israel before David. Saul was disobedient to God, and so God chose David to replace Saul as king. And as David started to eclipse Saul in popularity, Saul went out of his mind and tried to murder David repeatedly. And we know that as David was running from Saul, he spent time in the wilderness, the wilderness of Judah, almost certainly fleeing from Saul. The second situation during which Psalm 63 could have been written, uh, many years after David had become king, there was a season in which one of David's own sons named Absalom tried to steal David's throne and to murder his father. And again, we're told in scripture that during this time, David fled into the wilderness I think this psalm was probably written when David was running from Absalom. Most commentators seem to think that. You could talk with me afterward about why I think that's the case. We're not sure, but that's my best guess. And so in summary, the picture that we have of David's circumstances here is that he's in a barren wasteland. He's far from his home, which is currently occupied by a deceitful and powerful enemy who's lying about him and trying to kill him. And that enemy is either his king or his son. What do you think was going on in David's heart in these circumstances? If you read others of the Psalms, 
You'll find that David indicates that he was wrestling with grief and with fear and with uncertainty and despair and hurt. Friend, let me ask you, what do you think David needs in this circumstance? What is David's soul's thirst for? If you were in David's shoes, what would you think? What would you feel that you needed most? How would you respond to the kind of pressure that David is experiencing? We don't have to speak hypothetically here. How do you respond when you find yourself, so to speak, in a dry and weary land where there's no water? When you're under great pressure, when you face grief and fear and uncertainty and despair and hurt, what do you see in those moments as your soul's deep and desperate need? What is your soul thirst for? Where do you go for relief and release? Well, let's see what Psalm 63 has to show us about our deepest need this morning. Two points this morning. First, David's soul thirst. And second, David's satisfaction. David's soul thirst and David's satisfaction. First point, David's soul thirst. There in verse 1, David describes his greatest need, his deepest longing, as a soul thirst for God himself. Verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David looks around this arid desert, and he uses the fact that his body desperately needs water to illustrate for us that his soul even more desperately needs the living God. Look with me how everything that David does in this psalm is oriented toward, is pointed toward God. Verse 1, what does David seek? I seek you. I thirst for you. I faint for you. Verse 2, I've looked upon you. Verse 3, my lips will praise you. Verse 4, I will bless you. Verses 5 and 6, my soul will be satisfied when I remember you. Verse 8, my soul clings to you. Verse 11, the king shall rejoice in God. Psalm 63 was written in dire circumstances, but it's really not about David's circumstances. It's about David's God. Right? Even as he's on the run for his life in the middle of a barren wilderness, David understands his soul's greatest need to be that he engage in relationship with the living God. That's what his soul thirsts for. Now listen to how the Puritan Thomas Brooks puts it. I'll edit some of the old-fashioned English here. Thomas Brooks says, he does not say, my soul thirsts for water, but my soul thirsts for thee. Nor does he say, my soul thirsts for the blood of my enemies, but my soul thirsts for thee. Nor does he say, my soul thirsts for deliverance out of this dry and barren wilderness, but my soul thirsts for thee. My soul thirsts for thee in a dry and weary land where no water is. 
Friends, no matter who we are, no matter what our circumstances are, the Bible teaches that our soul's deepest need is for communion, for fellowship, for relationship, for friendship with God. Spiritually speaking, we live in a dry and weary land. There is no other water down here. The trouble is we are like small children who need sleep but don't know it. And I, I don't know much about small children, but as I understand it, sometimes small children get really cranky and angry because their bodies need sleep and they feel bad. But sleep is rarely what small children throw a tantrum in order to get, right? I don't need a nap. I need my sister to give me that. I need mom to let me play outside. I need ice cream. I need the world to revolve around me. No, dude, you need a nap. Friends, we are like that. We misunderstand what our souls really need. How often do we look to good things that God has given us to do what only he can? Two signs, two signs that we are looking to created things to satisfy our souls in the way that only God can. First, anger, and second, anxiety. Anger and anxiety. What is it that makes you sinfully angry when you don't get it? What is it that makes you sinfully anxious that you might lose it? Friend, that's what you're looking to, to satisfy the thirst of your soul. Whatever makes you sinfully angry, whatever makes you sinfully anxious, that's what you're looking to, to satisfy the thirst of your soul. Listen to these words from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, as God uses the language of thirst and water to describe how we pursue other things in the place of God. Jeremiah, the Lord speaking through Jeremiah says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Did you notice Jeremiah describes it as evil, not just empty, not just fruitless, but evil when we aim to satisfy our soul's deepest thirst with things other than God. When we receive good things as gifts from God and give him thanks, that's wonderful. But when we look to them to do what God himself was meant to do for us, we are insulting the Lord. The book of James calls it spiritual adultery because we're giving to, to, to created things what rightly belongs to our creator. We're saying to God, hey, you're really not enough for me. You're really not all that glorious, all that satisfying. In Psalm 63, David is so clear that his soul thirst is properly satisfied and only can be satisfied in God. So how does David satisfy his soul in the Lord? Well, that's our second point this morning, David's satisfaction. So if you've been a Christian really for any length of time, this is probably not the first time that you've heard these ideas that we're speaking about. 
Christians often talk about how God is our soul's deepest need and how we wrongly run after other things to satisfy it. But sometimes when Christians talk about being satisfied in God, I think that we are frustratingly vague. Sometimes be satisfied in God, it sounds like, hey, just be happy anyway, even though you're not getting what you want. Oftentimes, I think Christians don't really know what it means to be satisfied in God or how we do that. So if you were to take me to a steakhouse and set me down in front of a 16-ounce medium-rare steak and say to me, hey, enjoy, you wouldn't have to say anything else. I'd know what to do. If you bought me tickets to a movie and dropped me off at the theater and said, hey, enjoy, You wouldn't have to walk me through it. I'd know what to do. But for all our talk about enjoying and being satisfied in God, I think often we don't know what that looks like. We don't know how to do that. And friends, that's one of the reasons that Psalm 63 is so helpful because it is wonderfully concrete in describing how David satisfies his soul in the Lord. Psalm 63 is by no means exhaustive, but in large part, this psalm gives us a picture of what it looks like to seek after satisfaction in God. So with the time that we have left, let's look at five ways that David quenches his soul thirst in God. David's satisfaction, five ways that David satisfies his soul in the Lord. The first way that David satisfies his soul in God, David beholds God's glory. He beholds God's glory. We've looked at verse one several times. Oh God, you're my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. So what does David do with his soul thirst? We'll look at verse two. He says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. David's soul is thirsty for God, so he looks at, he beholds the power and the glory of God in his sanctuary. Well, what does that mean? Does he have an ecstatic vision of God's heavenly sanctuary? No, I don't think so. Or does he take a field trip to Jerusalem and visit the tabernacle? I don't think so. He's in the wilderness, and there's not even a picture of God in the tabernacle. No, we get a clue as to what this beholding is down there in verse 6. Look at the verbs in verse 6. David says, when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. David beholds God's glory He looks at what God is like by remembering, by meditating, by directing the attention of his mind to what God has revealed about himself. David is not using his physical eyes to behold here. He's using what Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 calls the eyes of the heart. He is considering, he's pondering, he's thinking about what God has revealed about himself. So Christian, listen, this is what this means for for us. 
If we want to satisfy our soul's thirst in the Lord, then we must spend time thinking about him, about what he's revealed himself to be like, about his power and his glory. And more specifically, we must spend time thinking about his word because that's where he has revealed his power and glory to us. The Bible's word for thinking about God in this way is the word meditate or meditation. To meditate really just means to spend time intentionally thinking about something. This is so foreign to us. Like maybe super advanced, extra special guru Christians with a lot of time might meditate on occasion. That's how we think about meditation. But meditation is part and parcel of biblical religion. I counted 19 references to meditation in the book of Psalms alone. We talk so often about reading our Bibles, and that's wonderful. I hope we read our Bibles more, not less. The magic in reading our Bibles, so to speak, is that we are meditating as we read, that we are directing our attention toward the God who speaks to us in Scripture. Not that our words pass over, you know, the, I'm, I'm sorry, our eyes pass over the words on the page. There's nothing special about that. It's meditation. That's how David beholds God's glory. Let me just share one thing that I found really helpful in meditating on God's word in order to behold his glory. I am a weak and distractible person. I am exceedingly distractible. And so in order to meditate on God's word, one thing that I've found is helpful is I have to take my phone and put it on do not disturb or, you know, that airplane mode and put it somewhere else. And I I literally bought, I I meant to bring it up here and wave it at you, but I, I bought a kitchen timer. And I, I set that kitchen timer for just a few minutes. I don't do this every day, but, but sometimes I do. Set it for a few minutes. And I pick one Bible verse. Sometimes I write it down. And I start the kitchen timer. And I say, until that kitchen timer goes off, I am going to think about this Bible verse and the God that is revealed to me in it. And you know what? Most days when I do that, Three or four times before the timer goes off, I find myself thinking about something else. And I have to say, wait, why am I sitting here without my phone with a kitchen timer and a Bible verse in front of me? Ah, yes, it's so that I will meditate on God because that is the deep need of my soul. I have to do it three or four times within this few minutes. And friends, some, some days, you know, I, I don't report experiencing a, a spiritual high. Sometimes I'm so deeply distracted that it doesn't feel like it does me any good. But I can report truthfully to you that God has satisfied my soul as I've spent time meditating on him. I believe that I am a, by God's grace, a happier Christian today because I've spent time meditating on God's word. I do it so badly But God is so gracious to meet with us as we pursue him, as we behold his glory by meditating on his word. Here's another opportunity for meditating on the Lord, for beholding his glory. Look there at verses five and six. David says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. His soul went to five guys. 
and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Friend, what do you think about when you can't sleep? What goes through your mind as you toss and turn in the evening? What if I told you that there's something that you could think about when you lie awake at night that would be a lasting source of joy and peace? Friend, what a great reason to memorize Scripture. Do not memorize Scripture in order to impress God or people. Do not memorize Scripture in order to feel righteous. Memorize Scripture so that when you can't sleep, you can remember God on your bed and meditate on Him in the watches of the night so that you can behold His glory and satisfy your soul. That's the first way that David satisfies his soul in the Lord, by beholding God's glory. Second way that David satisfies his soul is by delighting in God's love. In verse 2, David says he looks upon God in the sanctuary to see his power and his glory. What's the first specific thing, the next specific thing David mentions about God's glory there in the next verse? What is it that makes God so glorious? Look at verse 3. It says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Brothers and sisters, we don't meditate on God as on a beautiful painting or a moving story or an arresting mountain range. We think on him as one who loves us deeply and personally. Listen, let me, let me show you how much God loves you. If you're anything like me, all of this talk about being satisfied in the Lord, it can be so convicting because we're so bad at it, right? The Lord God, our creator, the fountain of living waters, he's given us himself. And yet in our folly and our evil, we don't really have the taste for it, right? We love him so much less than we ought to. Listen, here's how much God loves you. God knew your feebleness and your foolishness and your wandering. And he still gave his son Jesus to die for your spiritual adultery so that he might have you. That he might be your God and you might be one of his forgiven people. Christian, you don't satisfy your soul by thinking about your love for God. That will depress you. You satisfy your soul by thinking about God's love for you. That's how your love for God grows. We sing about it this time in, sometimes in these words. We sang this as our opening hymn. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. 
This is one of the best things I can sing to get my joy and my love up. Verse five of that song. My love is oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows, but peace with him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. Friends, listen, the steadfast love of God in Christ is better than life. And we satisfy our souls as we delight in that love, as we behold God and we see his steadfast love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the gift of his son. Third way that David satisfies his soul's thirst in the Lord. We've just talked about it. David sings God's praises. David looks at God by faith. He meditates on him. He remembers him. He delights in God's love. And then his joy bursts into song. Look again at verses three and four. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. By the way, There's no pressure, there's no guilt about any of this, but if it would help you to express praise to God when we're singing by raising your hands, if it would help you to raise your hands, go for it. Psalm 63 says, go for it. Don't think about what other people are thinking, think about the Lord. If it would help you, go for it. Verse five, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Once again, second half of verse seven, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. We sing about God because we enjoy him. We also sing about God in order to enjoy him. As C.S. Lewis talks about how enjoyment is naturally completed or consummated as we express our pleasure. We praise things in order to enjoy them. Yesterday, I went to Senor Ramon Taqueria in Sterling with a longtime friend of mine. And I had not one, but two tacos wrapped in a quesadilla on corn tortillas. It was amazing. I'm pretty sure, I, I, I think, in fact, at lunch, I said out loud to my buddy, Bro, this is like the perfect food. I didn't say that because I felt like I owed a compliment to the chef. I said it as a means of further enjoying my taco. I'm enjoying telling you all about it now. It's like I'm having it again. Right? You see, we praise things in order to enjoy them. Saints, singing God's praises is a means of satisfying our souls in the Lord. Right? Read the rest of the Psalms and you'll be under no illusion that every time you come to God in worship, you'll be having a spiritual high. The Psalms are full of Psalms that are not spiritual highs. There are more spiritual lows than highs in the Psalms. But if you want to pursue solid joys, if you want to pursue soul satisfaction in the Lord, one of the best things you could do is sing His praises is express to him how lovely and delightful he is. Right, The satisfaction that we get from singing God's praises, again, it's not a satisfaction in how great we're doing at being Christians. 
It's not a satisfaction that, wow, look at, look at how happy I got through singing. I must be a great Christian, and that's what's making me happy, right? That's not the object of our satisfaction. The object of our satisfaction is God. It's who he is. It's what he's like. That's why we sing the songs that we do that are rich with his scriptures and his character more than our emotions, David is satisfied by beholding God's glory. He's satisfied by delighting in God's love. He's satisfied by singing God's praises. Fourth way David satisfies his soul in the Lord is by seeking God's presence. Seeking God's presence. There in verse 7, David says, You, God, have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. The image there seems to be that of a mother bird covering her chicks with her wings. Right? It, it connotes intimacy and closeness and protection. Look there at verse 8. David says, my soul clings to you. In the KJV, it says, my soul followeth hard after thee. Right? David is intent on being spiritually close to God. What does that look like? Right? God, is, God is not in a specific place on earth that we can just go to. What does it mean to be near to him? Well, one very practical thing I think it looks like is the kind of prayer, again, that we see throughout the Psalms. The Psalms are full of God's people talking to him about what's going on in their hearts. And it makes sense that that's how God's people draw near to him. If you want to be close with someone, you have to talk to them. If you want to be close with someone, you have to speak with them intimately about what really matters to you. You have to be transparent with them about what's going on in your heart of hearts. That's how David seeks God's nearness in prayer, in honest, psalm-like prayer about his heart, from his heart. While we're speaking about this, let me, let me just say something very briefly about, about feeling close to God. In Psalm 63, we get the sense that David experienced the nearness of God as he sought him. But the Bible acknowledges that very often, people who are earnestly seeking God don't feel that close to him. If when you pray, you feel far from God, listen, you're in good company in Psalm 13, verse 1, the psalmist, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right, he says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Listen, if that's you this morning, if you feel like God has hidden his face from you, if you are a Christian, if you're seeking him, but you feel that his face is hidden from you, let me encourage you with the very last line of Psalm 63. Look at the last line of the psalm. It says this, For the mouths of liars will be stopped. The mouths of liars will be stopped. David seems here to be speaking about his human enemies, again, who are trying to murder him as they slander him. And he says that their lies will come to an end. 
But friend, doesn't this verse point us to the day when everything that lies to us about God will be silenced? Doesn't this point us to the day when the accuser who loves to lie to us about the love of our God and his willingness to draw near to us, doesn't this verse point us to the day when his mouth will be stopped and everything that lies to you about God's willingness to draw near to you, if you draw near to him, will be gone Friend, one day you will not only know and believe that you have, but feel and experience the nearness of God for all eternity. And that leads us to the fifth and final way that David satisfies his soul in the Lord, which is by hoping in God's salvation. Hoping in God's salvation. As we've mentioned, David writes this psalm while others are trying to kill him. And we see from this psalm that David is confident that God will save him from his enemies. Let me read verses 9 to 11. He says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. David rejoices in God because he's confident that he'll be delivered, that God will defeat David's enemies. And that makes sense that that would cause David to rejoice. If you were in a life-threatening situation and you somehow obtained certain knowledge that you would be delivered, you would rejoice. And that's what David does. Neither Saul nor Absalom prevailed against David in the end. Well, friends, what about, what about us? What about our circumstances? What about the dry and weary land in which we might find ourselves this morning? Will God do for me what I hope that he does in this difficult, difficult thing that I'm facing? Well, friend, I I certainly hope so. But listen, what we have in Psalm 63 is immeasurably better than the quick fixes that we often long for. You see, Psalm 63 is in Scripture not just because David is a godly model for us, but because David points us to someone else. And as David rejoices in his salvation, what we see is that the salvation of God's people is wrapped up in the salvation of God's king. See, David's confidence that he will be delivered leads him to say in verse 11, the king shall rejoice in God and all who swear by him shall exult. Who is him there? It could be God or it could be the king. David is saying all who swear allegiance or are loyal to God and or the king will exult, will triumph because I'm being delivered as I am being delivered. What's not ambiguous here is that here and elsewhere, David associates his own deliverance as the king with the deliverance of God's people. Brothers and sisters, in the context of the story of Scripture, like so many of the Psalms, Psalm 63 finds its fullest meaning in the mouth of King David's greater son. 
There was another king in the Bible who thirsted in the wilderness as he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. There was another king in the Bible who had lying, murderous enemies from whom he trusted God to deliver him. There was another king in the Bible who, unlike you, unlike me, unlike King David, only ever satisfied his soul in the living God. And that king's name is Jesus Christ, the son of David. And listen, because Jesus was delivered, so will his people be delivered. Jesus lived the perfect life of delight in God that you and I should have lived. He died in the place of spiritual adulteresses like you and me. And three days later, in the words of Psalm 63, those who sought to destroy Jesus' life realized they had not prevailed when God raised Jesus Christ from the dead in victory over sin and Satan and death and all his enemies. And the the resurrection, the salvation from death of God's king is the salvation of God's people, right? The promise of the gospel is that everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ will receive from Jesus the same resurrection life by which God raised him. If you're in Christ, listen, you are alive with the resurrection life of Jesus. God is making you into someone who can sing Psalm 63 truthfully. If you are in Christ, God has promised that just as God raised Jesus from the dead... So when Christ returns, he will raise you from the dead in a resurrected, glorified body. And on that day, you will be delivered from everything that has afflicted you in this life. Listen, the Bible teaches that if we have the Lord, we can have joy in spite of terrible circumstances. But the Bible never teaches that our circumstances don't matter, right? Exactly to the contrary, The good news of the gospel is that God has promised through the resurrection of Jesus to rescue his people from every one of their horrible circumstances. Brothers and sisters, what joy we ought to have, what grounds for joy we have in the certain hope that Christ will deliver us from this world of sin to dwell in his house forever. Friend, whether you are in a place of abundance today, or in dry and weary circumstances, Psalm 63 holds out to you a free and glorious gift. Psalm 63 speaks to you about the living water for which your soul thirsts, and the good news is that it is free. I can't think of any better way to conclude a sermon on Psalm 63 than by taking the Lord's Supper together. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus and his sacrifice for us, his love for us, are pictured to us through bread and wine. The food that our souls need to live is signified to us through the food that our bodies need to live. And friends, you can't pay for this meal. It's free. The life-giving bread, the rich wine, the living water to which these elements point They're not for people who have achieved a certain level of goodness this week. 
They are for people who will humble themselves and receive the free gift of God's grace in his son, Jesus Christ. Friend, whether you have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness or whether you need to come to him again for the millionth time, hear now the gracious call of our God from the words of Isaiah 55. Let me close with these words. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Please pray with me. Father, you are great and glorious. God, your presence and your beauty and your glory and your saving love are all satisfying. Thank you for your son, Jesus, in whom you offer us yourself, we who have sinned against you. Thank you for Christ's perfect life of delight in you in our place. Thank you for his death to pay for all our sin and our waywardness. Thank you for the new life of communion with you that you give us through his resurrection as we trust in him. Lord, would you teach us to quench the thirst of our souls in you alone. We ask these things through Christ. Amen.